In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. back everybody to not another true crime podcast i'm sarah levine and i'm danny murphy but we're not important today no, sarah and i always love the days that we're not important because it <laughs> means we have a guest that we are so excited to talk with we cannot believe it danny take it away we are joined <laughs> with ali from ali and aj i mean truly yeah this is this is dreams coming true we're so excited Seriously. to talk to you Aww. That's so sweet. Thank you. Our, our old millennial selves are like, <laughs> we can't. This is my dream. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so excited you made time for us because, of course, you're super busy because you have With Love From coming out March 15th, which I'm so excited. I was telling everybody before, too, your last album was so good. Thank you. Slow Dancing and Symptoms of Your Touch, obsessed with. Thank but you. But I am even more excited to find out that you're a true crime fan. I am. Uh, much to my sister and my husband's dismay because they are not. Um, and... You know, AJ knows that I'm on this podcast today. She literally texted me and said, have fun. And I just texted uh. back, oh, I will. <laughs> so so she knows that, that we're doing this. And yeah, I don't know where the fascination comes from. Um, I think it's more that I'm fascinated with why a person would would do this or what happens in their life that is traumatic, that triggers something in their psyche to shift. You know, obviously, uh, you know, I think being interested in true crime is like a slippery slope at times because you don't want to be exploitative of someone's, you know, actual death and the people that obviously were involved around that. So it's something that, like, I'm always interested in, but I'm also like, I don't want to feel like I'm a super fan of this because that's also like a weird thing to be a super fan of. But I'm more fascinated and interested in, like, how did we get here? Why did this person do this? you know, can we find out who the killer is and do we ever get full closure on that? I think that's a perfect way to describe it too, because it comes from such a fascination that these things actually happened in the world. And when you get past the sensationalism of it, you can kind of start to unpack what went, what is like, is there an issue with society that it highlights? Is it something that happened to them? Or is it even just kind of a thing to even have people like look out for? So there is really so, so much to unpack from them. Totally agree. It's interesting that I feel when we were kind of talking about which ones we should do, we have one that's L.A. based because obviously so much of your life and your music and everything is very Los Angeles and or California, mm-hmm. we'll say it. Very. But we, yeah. we wanted to, uh, you were also interested on the release of uh, Charles Sobraj, who was, uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with him, if you watch the TV show The Serpent, it kind of unpacked so much of his story. Did you end up, did you watch that adaptation? Yeah, I did actually. And um uh, I have a couple girlfriends that are kind of into true crime. So I'll like message them about, you know, cases or whatever. And my friend Yasmin, who lives in the UK, suggested the show. She was like, I think this is actually really well done. And she was just like hooked on the series and thought it was such a wild story. Um, and just the way that like he finally got caught. And then the fact that now he's actually out. I'm just like, wait, what? Like, how did this happen? I feel like those 
those adaptations too can be super hit or miss because, you know, there's for every serpent, there's a Dahmer and it can get very like controversial or some of them are just like straight up bad. Like you're like, this is boring. Like (laughs) some of them you're like, Oh, you didn't even look like research, like the research aspect of it was missed. Cause I feel like with the serpent, when I watched that and then when I went, cause I'm always so curious, I go to like read the articles about the case and I'm like, Oh, this is perfect. Like they kind of touched on every single part fully. And that's why I was equally shocked as you were when I was like in December when I was like, how is this man released? He's 78 and he, uh, was released on health purposes. So hopefully that means he's not going to get into anything, but from anybody who's familiar right. with the case, he has done, all, he continues to do a lot of things. Yeah. And there was like some photo online of him on a flight next to a, did you see that image? A next to a girl that oh was God. like, nightmare. Like, are you kidding me? I'm sitting next to this guy that just got released from prison. So yeah, I think it's really wild. I mean, I guess health purposes, what? Because like, they think that he shouldn't be kept in jail because he has like a... I think he has like a heart condition. A heart something. condition, they said. Yeah. But also, doesn't that sound like something that Charles would probably say to try to get out of jail? Well, I that's the thing. This man has yeah. evaded jail for so long. And then yes. also, it's kind of the thing... And where, that's his thing. His whole thing is escaping from prison. That's yeah. why they called him the serpent, yeah. right? And, and that like he befriends all of the guards and like... Every single person, like, falls for him. I, I guess he's just, like, a charming guy. It's very creepy. And that's what's uh, charming even from, I think, the first crime, because he started doing, like, burglary and robbery when he was, like, in his early teens. And even then, before he even had uh, decades of skills, he was able to get preferential treatment, got books in jail, was able to, like, hang out, kind of make his way around. Crazy. And that's where he met a body. It is insane how he was just able to literally serpent his way through everything. To hear. Totally. I guess it's kind of the perfect name for him because he really was a snake. <laughs> fully, fully, fully. And I feel there are so many snake-like characteristics that happen in so many crimes, which I feel I am. That's why I'm very curious to talk about William Desmond Taylor with you, especially because he kind yeah. of really embodied both the American dream, but also I feel like the scandalous oh, yeah. moments of Hollywood. And through a lot of parties and everything like that. So I feel like the first question I just want to ask you is how, because I mean, I live in Jersey, Sarah's in Queens. <laughs> is when you look, when you hear stories about Hollywood, you're just always kind of like, okay, it's magical, but also mayhem and so much is going on. Yeah. What is your kind of thoughts on like the entertainment Hollywood business? I know it's a little question, but like from your experience, do you kind of see how it can breed a lot of crime? For sure. I think there's also like a dark energy that you can feel around like these kind of old Hollywood homes even. I mean, you know, like the Black Dahlia murder house, like you can pass, you know, going on your way to like the uh, Hollywood Bowl uh, or the the Greek. So, you know, it's one of those things where like it, I think because like power and control is such a huge part of Hollywood, that only is going to breed terrible instincts and, you know, uh, I think it's only going to lead to destruction. So of course there's going to be serious crime that's involved underneath the layers of, of Hollywood. So it doesn't surprise me. I feel it's also that hard thing where there's no real, I know like there's companies there, but there's no like Hollywood HR that can like (laughs) check on anything for the most part, which is really insane as well. No, you're right. That it's true. So people also aren't really held accountable at a certain standard. Like Things just kind of slip through the cracks and you're like, wait, but in any other business, this would never go unchecked. But somehow in Hollywood, and I'm sure especially 
in the 20s and 30s when it was a bit of like a wild, wild west, even more so. It was incredible. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up because we're so William. He was born in Ireland on April 26, 1872, and a lot of his case like information about this came so much from like local Irish uh, outlets. Because for a while he was one of a really major exports from there of being like a Hollywood yeah, success story. It's like when someone makes it out of your hometown and you're like, hell yeah, yeah, and then <laughs> right, doesn't always right. go doesn't always go as well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he was born William Cunningham Tanner but changed to William Deslin Taylor when he moved to the U.S. And he was kind of, he kind of grew up a little well off, moved to the U.S. in 1891. And it was interesting. So he kind of moved, studied English, was really focusing kind of on the arts, but had a pivot where he was also a great horseman. And when he moved over, I think his way over to the U.S. was finding employment on a cowboy ranch in Kansas. And when the owner of the ranch died, Francis Turnley, he started working kind of odd jobs in the theater world, but he started as a horse guy, which is insane. A horse guy. Interesting. That's not a stereotype that we hear. We know all about the horse girls, yes. but. That is true. I am a <laughs> former horse girl. I'm semi-current as well, but I grew up riding horses. When I was, when we were doing the research for this, I was like, okay, horses, I mean, you do have cowbells expertise, so <laughs> really. I do. You're right. That is correct. But are you a nature person? Like, I mean, I guess like, is that kind of just yeah. part of always your life, horses and everything? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I we for whatever reason we really gravitated towards uh, horseback riding at like a young age. So um, AJ and I would go to the barn like two to three times a week after school. Um, we weren't into like competing, which is interesting because that's kind of its own separate world. And I feel like you have to really invest. I mean, a ton of time and money into that if you really want to be successful. But we just loved it for like the environment. We loved taking lessons. We loved the grooming aspect. We loved everything. So um, obviously when we started kind of working at a young age, that was just impossible to continue to do. But my mom now owns a horse out in Santa Inez. Um, so when we visit her, we go and ride him. We ride him. Yeah. That's awesome. That. No competitions, just vibes. Yes. I'm very into that. Yeah, no competition. Yeah. We were like, music. <laughs> we, can, we can take the music seriously. We'll get into the music seriously. Yes. But horseback riding, that can be just an outlet. I, I think that. that's also important because I feel like especially – now in modern times, everybody's like, oh, how can I like, I have, I think I have to monetize my hobby yes. or like do something with it. So it's really important. I feel just to be like, this is my precious me time that I don't care about how yeah. I do. Let me just enjoy it and not make an Instagram account for it. Yes. <laughs> and I don't have to like do branding sponsorship and reels that I'm posting 24 seven. Like I can just enjoy this and it's casual. Yeah. Oh, yes. so true. Oh my God. It, no one in this case that we're uncovering knows what an Instagram reel is. And for that, God bless them. <laughs> They're probably better off. Yeah. Yeah, God so, bless them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, so his sister, unfortunately, did pass in Ireland during this time when he was doing uh, traveling theater troops kind of in a smaller degree. And he got an inheritance from that, which I didn't really know that's how inheritance could work. Like, across. I mean, I don't, I think I list my mom as my benefactor on all my insurance forms right now. I guess I could. I'm not married. So yeah. So, um, he did use that money to ultimately move to the big apple Woo. where he ended up marrying an actress there, Ethel May Hamilton. I feel like, you know, they're always mm -hmm. just in the same theater, theatrical artistic world. They kind of, their lives mended together. You don't see a lot of Ethel's nowadays. No, It's not a name that's making a comeback. No, It's definitely not. <laughs> I kind of like it though. Yeah, it, it could have her moment. Don't yeah. you know? We don't want to count yeah. Ethel out yet. And they had one daughter, and they kind of they lived just sort of like a nice New York City life, which is not always the easiest thing to do. Just you know, living well. They were around in like chic circles, kind of known as like 
the social, like almost a social light aspect. But mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, and I don't know if this is, I'm Irish, so I feel like it does track for a lot of <laughs> a lot of our Irish people. He uh, suffered from depression and drinking, which isn't always a good combination. It is the stereotype. Yes. And I feel also him just kind of moving over, traveling, all that stuff. It just kind of bred its way that no one could really check on him because he was just always sort of out and about. He could just mm-hmm. kind of have a bread yeah. from it. And what is crazy, and this is where it's kind of in those moments where like we were saying earlier, like there's no like company or corporation that can check on people that are artists. In 1908, he just left his family for years and traveled around the world and nobody knew where he was. I mean, how do you so do that? Wild. I mean, see, he had no Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody could track him. There's no email. There's no he's cell phone. He's not geotagging. So like, nothing. hey. Right. So he's like, I'm truly right. off the grid. Right. He was just like, you'd have to hope to get a postcard from him. And that's kind of it, right? Or tell him. Right. Like, right. <sighs> and that's what's even crazy, too, because it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going like around the tri-state area. He went to like Canada. So like he crossed borders during all of this. And this was 1908. He was not found until 1912, where his wife was able to locate him, Ethel, in San Francisco. And obviously, wow. she wasn't, it wasn't a big homecoming. She was like, Hi. Yeah. Do you I'm remember me? You. Yeah. <laughs> hey, how have you been? Our daughter's fine. Goodbye. She's, a, she's like a toddler now. Yeah. Jeez. Which is just crazy. So then, of course, I feel, you know, once you get divorced in San Francisco, if you have artistic dreams, I guess. The next stop is Los Angeles, of course. That's where he went to kind of uh, make it big. (laughs) So wild. And because he'd had the acting bug for years, and he spent the last four years acting like he did not have a family waiting (laughs) for him. Correct. He was probably like, I I was made for this. I am an actor. Yeah. Exactly. People thought Austin Butler was given method acting with his accent. (laughs) This is method. He's next level now. Yeah, here's an example. (laughs) Yes. So he was in a few silent films before he went behind the camera in 1914. And somehow he just became like an instant overnight sensation. Um, I don't know how. I'm assuming he was just a rich white guy. So I feel that kind of gives way to instant success. Yeah. It wasn't very hard for him. Although now I kind of want to go back and watch these movies, like these silent films. I read this one review of his his one film that was like, many silent films hold up well and are still very entertaining today. Unfortunately, Nurse Marjorie is not one of those films. Wow. <laughs> so that's one All of right. his movies. So I don't know. You know, maybe he's just one of those directors, like we can name a few, who just like pump out bad movie after bad movie. Certain directors who are on Vader Pump Rules and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Or just pump out bad movies because it's just still, you still get money. They so. get money. And then they're like, okay, yeah. They're like, oh, you hate me. I'm oh, sorry. I, I can't check my phone at Soho House. So you can <laughs> you can give me a zero on Rotten Tomatoes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, he made over 60 films and his directorial debut was The Judge's Wife. And then he also made a 30-episode serial, wow, shouts out Sarah Koenig, called The Diamond from the Sky. And his other films were Davy Crockett, Huckleberry Finn, and Anne of Green Gables. So, okay, he read books. He went yeah. to the library. And I th- and that's what's crazy. Those are all, like, films Those are like and stories. stories. Yeah. So I'm sure wow. they also did really well. And that's probably why they were – he was a known director. Yeah. It's insane. Wow. And then he actually took a break in 1918 when he basically enlisted in the Canadian Army. And he was actually in Dunkirk during the end of World War One. 
Oh yeah, but this is what sort of, that is insane to me that he kind of was having this illustrious career and then just joined the Canadian army. Right, like so he didn't I- even get drafted. It's not one of those things where you have no choice. So that choice. means that like he volunteered? He volunteered to be a part so. of it. Yeah. I think so. He's just like, no, nope, I'm going to have my moment. And I know a lot of, um, I feel like creatives get burnout, but that is kind of a severe response <laughs> to burning out. I don't know. That is a very severe response. And also now kind of leads me to think, if he saw some really crazy shit in war, maybe that caused him to kind of go into like a dark place, which maybe then led him, you know, to be a murderer. That's some. It kind of makes sense. Not that every person that goes to war becomes a murderer. Obviously, we know that's not true. But, but I think that it's a really hard thing for someone to like come back to society and and not suffer from some form of PTSD. I mean, it's just not, that's not how our brains are, are wired to have to, uh, you know, see that kind of thing. I also feel like even now, psychology is barely catching up with that. So go back a hundred years. There's right. not, there'd be like, God, no awesome. one is going to see a psychologist. Then. Oh yeah, they'd have absolutely zero resources. Like no, no one's no. got a therapist. Like that's not even, and especially for a man, like definitely not. So true. No. Yeah, oh. But he actually did climb climb the ranks. I mean, he became a major, and I'm like, okay, good for him. He he's good at a lot of things. I I kind of hate he, those people who you just pick up anything and you're good at it, and you're like, what's going on? He's good at picking up and leaving. So I feel like That's that is true. kind of the main. Very, his very main good skill. at that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, after World War One, he went back to Hollywood and pretty much just like went straight back into the flow of it. I mean. Love that. Yeah, he worked with like p- people like Mary Pickford and Wallace Reed, like all these big names from back then. And he Crazy. seemed very unstoppable. I right? It like that's the thing. It wasn't when I when we were looking into this case, I was like, he really like if we're if we were looking at him present day, he would be like a director everyone is knowing, like doing Yeah, the like abort- a current director that people know. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, weird, weird um fun fact. So Phil, the future was shot on Mary Pickford's old studio set out yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah. So it was a it was a very small uh, studio. I think it only had I want to say it only had two um, like actual studios where you could build sets within it. And then it had like, you know, these little bungalows and stuff. But um, I remember obviously not really knowing who Mary Pickford was, but everybody being like, this is like this stage is like haunted by Mary Pickford and she's like an old Hollywood movie star. And then I was like fascinated by it and, you know, read up on it. Yeah. I was gonna say, no wonder you started getting an, an, a, a fascination and yes. curiosity to like crime and spiritual like that. If you're like going to work as a teenager and right. like, Hey, by the way, did you have your lines? Yeah. It's haunted. It's haunted. Yeah, totally. And did anything creepy ever happen on set? That you're like, ooh, it's her. <laughs> Not that I can remember. No, I don't think anything really crazy, creepy happened. But I have had like some weird, I feel like, ghost encounters or whatever. I mean, my husband the other day just said that he thought he saw a ghost in our house. And I was like, wait, Uh-oh. excuse me, what? And it was a very casual, just threw it out there. I think it was like during lunch. And I was like, wait, okay, hold on. Back up a bit. You said you just thought that you saw a ghost in our home because our house is is like a mid-century, you know, uh, post and beam house. So it's been around, you know, since like the late 50s. Um, And he was like, yeah, it was weird. I thought that you were home and you would come into the house. And I like saw somebody like cross in front of our like hallway. And I thought it was you, but it wasn't. And I was like, it wasn't the dogs. Weird. 
no, no. That's crazy. Yeah. And you're like, you're telling me this, and now there's we're losing power. There's a lot exactly. going Exactly. And he said on he said he thought that it was strange that it happened and that maybe it had something to do with the fact that we were changing our roof. Like we got our entire roof redone literally like 24 hours before this crazy storm happened. So he was like, I don't know, maybe that like disturbed the ghost. And the ghost was like, what are you doing with the roof? Like, don't change it. Oh my gosh, that's like the watcher. Uh, that That is truly, you're just like, well, great. I can't wait to always be afraid when I look at my roof now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Anyways. So then unfortunately on February 2nd, 1922, this very high profile director on top of his game and everything like this was found inside his house in Alvarado Court, uh, which at the time is like a rich neighborhood in Westlake area. And he was 49 at this time and he was discovered lying down in his living room with a bullet in his back. What is crazy though, and what me and Sarah tend to realize at a lot of times during cases and murders that happened back then, it's just like crime scenes were not considered as uh, sacred or should be as closed off as mm-hmm. they are now. They would uh, right, just be like, right. hey, hey, Bob, you got to come look at this. And then Bob would invite his friend and like everybody. It was just- a free for all. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And when it's like someone high profile, they were almost kind of like how we have like, um, uh, grave sites that people go to look at now of celebrities or people that they really are like have an obsession with. It's, they, they were doing mm-hmm. that for the murder scenes or the crime scenes. Right. And right. what is insane too is there was a guy. So right after this, his body was found near a desk in his room and with like a canceled check. So police kind of thought he was just like doing about his day when he was shot in the back. Uh, but police, when they arrived, Studio executives were there. Actors were there. Like people That's he worked really with, weird. right? Which then makes you think that there was a plant. You think there's like a mm. that they're trying to kind of set the scene in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And people on top of that, they were going. They were seen going through his stuff. So either people were just weird. taking shirts they, that, that he wore so that they tasteless. thought he liked, or oh yeah. Oh my god, it's so crazy. It's it's that insane like obsession thing too of all these people that he's worked with, and you probably assume you have a, they have a rapport with. But he's still on the ground and you're going after his things, which I feel right. is sadly like symbolic for what happens in so many mm, avenues of mm-hmm. life. I feel I read, too, that the police were called for like an accidental death and they get there and there's a guy with a gunshot in his back. And they're like, this is not an this accident. is not accidental or like a natural death or something. And they were like, no, this was definitely a murder. <laughs> like what? Yeah, Wasn't there like a doctor there that like never was seen again? Yeah, so literally there was a doctor. I'm so glad you brought that up. So the doctor looked at him and was like, oh, he died of a stomach hemorrhage and then left. And no one saw him again. Nobody knew if he was a a real doctor or anything like that. Right. Also could have very well been the murderer, you know what I mean? And then just kind of pieced out. But then it also makes you think, like, is there some weird connection that he had that was shady that got him murdered. Like, mm. did he do something behind the scenes that was sketchy, you know, and maybe caused him to like participate in a crime that then got him killed? You know what I mean? Because also, very as we, possible. we know, he's had a very long life at 49 and not always making the best decisions right. that would leave him in that. I, I, this could be someone I feel could have some enemies or people Correct. not too happy Correct. with him. For sure. Starting with uh, Ethel. Ethel. I hope Ethel is just like, I'm in fucking New York. I'm raising a kid. I don't have time for that. (laughs) Totally. She's like, I'm I'm out. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, y'all have fun. Uh, She's like, I'm not going to Los Angeles. She's like, oh, he passed away. Oh, Oh, yeah, truly. (laughs) Like the Wendy Williams. (laughs) Uh, But of course, after this doctor, quote unquote, said this, the police were like, I don't know, we think it's the the bullet in his (laughs) back. Like they literally had to tell people like, 
no, this is why <laughs> he is dead. And he was shot with a small caliber pistol, which was not found at the scene. And what's also a really interesting fact as well, when he was found, he had a wallet that had what is today's value over like $1,200, a cigarette case, a pocket watch, a pen knife, a two-carat diamond ring on his finger, and a locket that had a photo of the actress Mabel Norman, who will come into play when we unpack yeah. the suspects. But this is kind of what made everybody think, oh, in no way is this a robbery, because why would you shoot this man leave and leave? These, yeah, leave all these possessions that obviously are worth a lot of money. Yeah. Worth so much money. And even if it's like, oh, maybe the two-carat diamond ring, everyone would know it's him. He had $1,300 about in his wallet that they could have mm -hmm. taken or anything from the house. So then it makes you think that it's like actually on purpose, not just like a random killing. It's something that is very specific. Right. Something exactly passion or anger or in that right. vein. Or something. And also um, a large sum of cash was allegedly shown to his accountant the day before uh, was then missing and never accounted for. Mm. So that also is a weird thing where it's not like a, a robbery because a robber would be, okay, I'm going into their home to take things. This had to be someone who knew his business workings to know his accountant yep. that could come into play with that. Right. And a, a lot of suspects, and that's this is the main, and this is why it's a very kind of a interesting sto story and case to unpack because so much of it is still up in the air with the suspects. Um, and the industry also went into a complete disarray almost at the time where people were kind of like, because this shocked the world. People were like, what is happening in Hollywood? What mm -hmm. is going on? Stockholders were losing money and kind of everything like that. So it started to kind of become a moment of, oh, we can't trust this business. We don't want to be involved with Hollywood. And why that is a really important aspect is that studios were then getting angry at how much media attention this was getting. So the police were told to lay off the case and kind of yep. just shh. Go about because it. it was like bad press for them to be like, we don't want to have people thinking that directors are getting murdered in Hollywood and stuff is being hidden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not good they for business. They just want to be like, oh, go see the movies. show. Totally. Yeah. And I'm sure you have probably have so many stories of people like, oh, business over everything. I guess that is what we're, okay, sounds good. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ugh, it's just insane because I'm sure if they were focusing all their attention and all the resources because he had so many resources and so much financial yeah. stuff, they could have been able to get some headway, but it was just kind of left into the ether of these suspects. Right. Well, I feel like this also caused a big uproar because it just caused a lot of people to have like all this backlash against Hollywood of like things that they were even allowed to publish in the movies that were like no rules back then. And just like promoting this lifestyle and blah, 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 which honestly sounds like 2023 talking points sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But you're right. There was, I mean, there was really no like accountability that was held. I mean, think about so many laws that were not enacted yet, like child labor laws, all of those things didn't even exist at that time. Um, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really wild when you think about how uh, like open-ended the industry was in terms of what people did and got away with. So true. So true. 
So as far as the suspects, so one is Edward F. Sands. He was a pretty main suspect. He had prior convictions for embezzlement, forgery, and serial desertion from the military, which is another weird, like, military connection. Connection, yeah. Weird. Um, and he apparently went by a lot of different names, Jazz being one of them, which I do love for him. It's good. It's a good name if you have to have a name. If you have to have it's a good name. Jazz is, yeah. Uh, he spoke with a Cockney accent as well, and... He was Taylor's valet until a few months leading up to the murder. People were suspicious because he previously tried to forge Taylor's names on checks while Taylor was in Europe. So, yeah, that's pretty suspicious. <laughs> and also, he Taylor had told police several months before his murder that he had fired a butler for improperly using his bank account. So it's like he definitely is not surrounding himself with, like, the right Great people. Great upstanding people. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and also our boy Jazz did try to steal from Taylor during that time. He took one of his cars, he took cash and jewelry, and also after the murder, he just completely vanished, which I feel like does not make you look it innocent. Doesn't it doesn't well. look great. Well, like also, oh. why didn't he try to maybe help or give clues to like finding who did it? I mean, just kind of disappearing is like uh very sus. After you stole, you did all these things from him, even though if you're a valet, someone's a valet. Stealing a car, I think, could be a good save because you're like, I was just taking the car around. That's my yeah. job. I was just showing the car the sights. test driving. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, also, an actress who lived next door told police that she saw a man go into Taylor's residence shortly before she heard a shot. Mm. And also what's interesting is the new valet, Henry Peavy, was the person who found Taylor's body. So people suspected it was him. Which I feel like that is kind of a very old-fashioned way to look at something. Where it it's, like, it's never really great to be the person that finds the body, but there's yeah. definitely Literally people just, that find the body and have nothing to do with the murder. Exactly. You're like, no, why would I be calling you guys to let you know the body's here if I was the one who right. did it? I know. Why are we right. just applying whoever smelt it, dealt it to murder? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Good point. Very good point. <laughs> so Pete- That's why Sarah's not a lawyer also, because you would yeah. use that in court, and they'd be like- I'd be like, your honor. Like, wow. This is- they're like, okay, I, I get, I get what you're going for. Clarity. She's made some points. I'll be like, Your Honor, he who denied it supplied it, and that is the law of the land. <laughs> uh, okay, so PV was arrested uh, three days before the murder, actually, for social vagrancy, which I don't even know what that means. I, I feel like it's just kind of like if you're walking around and people and like the police didn't like you. I think he was like, I know, a little, it, like it sounds like ye old profiling, yes. but whatever. Yeah, it's probably. Very much so. And a bit maybe like loitering in a way. Yes. Yeah. Old yeah, fashioned yeah, loitering. Totally. Yes, because he was charged with being lewd and dissolute. So yeah, I feel like that that does remind me mm-hmm. of loitering. So everyone just kind of ruled this guy out though, except for one journalist, Florabelle Muir who privately, this is hilarious, she privately thought that uh, PV did it. This is one of those moments where you're like, oh, this journalist is really going for a Peabody <laughs> and putting mm. all of her energy in one basket. And Sarah, I cannot wait for you to tell everybody what the basket is because it's... Ah, uh, wow. This is stuff that only could happen 100 years ago. <laughs> she, she tried to trick him into confessing which she did by, so she like took him to a cemetery and tried to scare him. And she wear, she wore like a sheet, like a bed sheet, like a ghost costume and said, this is the ghost and you need to confess. And I'm like, wow. girl, what? And she, it was kind of like very Scooby-Doo. So Scooby-Doo. Where it's like, you almost, you could have got away with it, but she didn't realize that Taylor had a British accent. 
So yeah. where just, is that journalism degree? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she really she really tried with that one, didn't she? She she went above and beyond. Maybe she should have done the journalist to acting pivot. I think she had the acting bug, maybe, but I don't know if she was very good at being a ghost though. I love that there's details about this. Like the fact that there's actual like like a, a record of this story actually happening, that's even more fascinating to me. I'm like, wow. How did this, how did this get like, told in her. history? <laughs> right. And I think I think it honestly was because every other outlet was like, why are you wasting your energy trying to profile this person who clearly everyone has kind of universally been like, this is not your guy. And yeah, she was like, oh, guy. I'm gonna do it. So I think she kind of she was like showing down. everybody like, no. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, Oof. for real. Did not work in her favor. It did not. He did not do it. And uh, he later, PV later died from syphilis-related dementia. She was very sad. Mm-hmm. Which I know. You don't really hear that 100 years. No, because people take the, antibiotics you know. now, and it's not a big deal. <laughs> That's true. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And this is kind of when it gets even to more Hollywood energy as well, because if we remember when the body was found, there was a locket with Mabel Norman's uh, face in it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so her name kind of from that automatically people were like, okay, well, there has to be a connection between the two of them. And she was a comedic actress who starred in Charlie Chaplin film. So very. That's legit. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately of the time, I mean, obviously it still is prevalent today, but I feel back then it was just kind of a much more free for all. Uh, She had a really intense drug dependency, uh, cocaine addiction. And it was kind of the thing where people, New, but they were just kind of like, oh well, she's acting, so oh, like they're not. They weren't trying to look for help for her. But Taylor mm-hmm. was one of the few who was kind of like, I want to try to help her because they potentially had a romantic history. A lot of people suspected. Wasn't so, this like a weird age difference too? Like, wasn't she very young? That was the next. Lady. That was the next lady. Oh gosh. Okay, sorry, I'm getting them confused. No, no I mean they have they have like it's Mabel and Mary. So there's a yes, there's a lot of overlap. That's it. Thank you. And. And also because our boy, yeah, that's the thing. He was never, I don't think anyone would consider him faithful. So you have a locket, you have a locket for with one lady and that's, yeah. So he was trying to basically get her like rehabilitation help from this drug addiction. Yes. Rehabilitation in like the 1920s sense. Whatever that is. Yeah. yeah, So his, well, he did plan and this is kind of where a lot of people lean into maybe being the, uh, top uh, potential thing. So in all efforts to cure cure her of her dependency, he would give police the names of her dealer. So oh, he that's did a, sn- a terrible idea. So he went, did the snitching route, which you can mm. see. In, that then really makes you a, think, yeah, it's probably like some kind of a drug cartel situation goes yeah. and kills him. You yeah. don't, you don't, you not don't. even a cartel, just like some guy who doesn't want to go to jail. Yeah, yeah literally someone some who's like, guy, yeah, it's not even as powerful as that. Totally. Yeah. Like one dude. Yeah. So he met with literally federal prosecutors, so high up before his death, and he was going to testify against the suppliers. So okay. this has witness tampering written all over it. I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the major word around town was that suppliers were like, oh, I'm not a no, 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 hiring a contact, a contract killer to assassinate the director. And even, uh, Mabel thought that too. She kind of was like, that could make sense, but I don't know who could do that because it's a contract uh, killer. Right. So 
She didn't could have any anybody. connection. It could have been that doctor. He could have been the hitman, just like checking up on his progress. Honestly, when you totally. said that, Ellie, I was like, that really could make a lot of sense for being like the suspect of, or the person who did it. And on the night mm-hmm. of the murder, Mabel claimed to have left Taylor's bungalow around 7.45 p.m. In a, in a happy mood. And she said they were all in a good mood. And um, she was the last known person to see him alive. And what also ties to that is that if the contract killer and the suppliers were watching her, knowing that they had a maybe romantic history, mm. they would be able to kind of be like, okay, well, now we know he's alone in the house and just maybe was thinking like, oh, Mabel left. If someone would knock on the door, it'd be her again or something like that is That's where true. my head was going. Right, right. And then also if like, if she's the last person who sees him alive, then they kind of also have inadvertently or maybe advertently kind of framed her in a way. Yeah, yeah. So people don't ask as many questions maybe. 100%. And it's hard too because- People, I mean, all of this was kind of floating around, but nobody thought she was the person who was behind it or who did it. But of course, this was all swirling. The tabloids were painting her in such a way. Her career took a major hit. And also, because unfortunately, this is how it came out, that she did have a dependency to cocaine. Mm. So everyone kind of just wrote her off as that. And I'm like, who did it back then, though? Was- like, come on. It was in Coca-Cola. Yeah. Right? Was, I don't know if it was mm-hmm. all the way back then, but I'm That's true. I'm like still kind of like whatever. And, it was the 20s. Yeah. And um she did she went to his funeral and cried through it and she did pass away like 8 years later from ill mm-hmm. health and according to her friend Julia Brew, uh Norman like near her like towards her dying days was like, "Do you ever think we're going to find out who killed Bill?" So Aww. she clearly cared about him she and cared. didn't know. I don't think she had answers. anything to do with it. I really don't. No. Me either. I think if you kill someone, like, I don't know, to keep up a lie on your deathbed, I know a lot of people do it, but I'm still kind of like, yeah. you know, you're not always lucid in those final moments. I think if there was something to reveal, she yeah. would have revealed it. Yeah, I agree. And also because it's like her career got so damaged. Yeah. So it's not like she was like moving, mm-hmm. being like, okay, let me just continue acting and just like focusing on that. Right. Like, it wasn't like, okay, she, my career's fine again. It's like, no, it's like taking a total turn and now nobody wants to hire me. Yeah. Exactly. So sad. Ugh. But there is one more suspect. And also, she looks kind of suspicious, too. What kind Uh, of a combo? Yes. Because it's a a daughter and the mom. It's a duo. Uh, Mary Miles Minter, which, wow, what a name. That's a a mouthful. (laughs) But she was a former child star who uh, Taylor had really helped her career. Um, And she was kind of the same age as the daughter that he had abandoned, which is a little bit weird on his part. Because... Very creepy, very forward. Yes, especially yeah. because they, they did find love letters from Minter in Taylor's bungalow. And because based on this, um, the reports alleged that there was a sexual relationship. He was 49, um, and they believed that it started when she was 17, which is still... But yeah, that's a not double good. age gap. Yeah, mm-hmm. Gross. I will say that the sort of like veracity of this alleged affair is still debated, but I don't know. That seems pretty sus to me. Well, it's hard because I feel a lot of it. She almost instantly was painted as like this crazy girl who was just writing all these letters. And he was like, well, I don't want them. I don't want them. But you had all like, I was like, why are you keeping them though? Yeah. Why are you keeping It's them? a very good point. Yeah. Why are you holding <laughs> on to all of hers? If you're actually like creeped out by this and she's obsessed with you. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so people did believe that her love was unrequited uh, Taylor often declined to see Minter and he described himself as too old for her. So 
All right, if that's true, I have to respect him for, you know, mm. not being totally gross. Or, or that was just his cover and they really did have a secret thing and he just was like, no, 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 no. Because he knew, obviously, people are going to judge me for this. Mm-hmm. He's like, ew, gross. I would never. That's the thing. Wake. from right, <laughs> What exactly. we have learned in the past 100 years of Hollywood, I'm more so going towards that point of view. That mm-hmm. he just had a cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That is true. Uh, so Minter was vilified in the press. Her career <sighs> took a hit. She made four more movies for Paramount Pictures, and then the studio failed to renew her contract. Um, but she did get offers from a lot of other producers, so I'm like, I don't know. It seems like she's doing okay. But no, but she kind of was like, felt like she was going to be so ridiculed of everything from the press, and just kind of was like, she also I think was told by Taylor, like, "Well, I help you as an actress, so it's kind of like your I'm your I'm your your lucky charm type of thing." Mm-hmm. So she just declined all future work. Oh, that's weird. Interesting. Which. I feel, do you, is, I feel, I don't know if that's like a thing that happens, but people trying to like, just, but I could see it being like this very successful young talent. And then the older people in the room, like, well, you're there because of me. So don't get it twisted. I'm the talent. You're just Mm. the talking head of it all or whatever. Interesting. I mean, she kind of had her, her happy ending in 1957. She married a Danish businessman. Shout out. She passed away in Santa Monica in 1984. That's a pretty long life. Respect. But then her mom, Charlotte Shelby, uh, was kind of like a momager, but not a good one. Um, she was very greedy over her daughter's career. She was manipulative. They would fight over money and apparently had lawsuits, but would kind of like reconcile later. Um, Shelby's initial statements to police about the murder are still kind of seen as evasive and obviously filled with lies. Uh, That's a quote. Uh, And that's in regards to both uh, Mary's relationship with Taylor and other matters, which we don't know what those are. But maybe the most compelling bit of circumstantial evidence was that Shelby allegedly owned a rare 38 caliber pistol and some weird bullets which were very Mm. similar to the ones which had killed Taylor. And as this information became public, she apparently threw the pistol into the bayou in Louisiana. I mean, that doesn't look great. Not the best move. It's no, kind of like the I don't valet. know why you do that if you're fully innocent. I mean, I guess you could do that just out of being like, I'm scared and I'm making a dumb choice in the moment. But yeah. it doesn't look good. <laughs> it kind, it's kind of just like, oh, you know, I just went in the bayou. You, you don't do that? It's just in the bayou. Yeah, yeah it's just in the right, bayou. Right, right. <laughs> So she knew the DA in Los Angeles, uh, just like socially, but she also like just left for left the U.S. for years, uh, basically to avoid inquiries and press. Not a good look. No, weird. No, I don't like, like this. Guys, I'm taking a social media break. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the thing where she was like, okay, that DA's in my back pocket. Oh, he's retiring soon. You know, I'm kind of in the mood to go to Chile. Let's see. That. Yeah, let's, let's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scratch some things off. Yeah, yeah. Yes. convenient. Yeah. Yes, and then in 1938, her other daughter, Margaret Shelby, who was also an actress, um, openly accused her mother of the murder. Um, To be fair, she was suffering from both clinical depression and alcoholism at the time of this accusation, but I don't know, I mean, that's... It's also, I feel a hard, again, because I feel like so much of this we're framing back in 1938, of like, was her mom kind of just saying, oh, she's depressed? Was she actually depressed? Like, there's a lot of layers to it, and also... Even a side effect of depression is not accusing your mom of a crime true. that you think she committed. That is very true. <laughs> it's very true. Um, 
they, they never tried Charlotte for murder. She died in 1957. But I think I read that she made a deathbed confession. Oh. I think I read mm-hmm. that. But I think it was on Medium. So don't quote me on okay, it too much. But I could, because that's, that's interesting, because overall, because there were so many celebrities involved with this, it was considered one of the first, like, full media circus cases, where it was, like, people going to get updates every time something was printed. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, kind of the derailment and sensationalism of it, because, like, why are we unpacking Mabel Norman's drug dependency True. to everything right. too and right. kind of stuff like that. But after looking at it, we know you did some research too on your own alley. What are your thoughts on this case and who do you, out of those suspects, are you gravitating towards if you are? I'm kind of gravitating towards the mom for whatever reason. Mm. But I don't think that the mom, if she, I don't know if she physically did it. I see like the mom hiring somebody to do it and that, she wasn't the person that like pulled the trigger. But um, at first I thought, okay, like this is so random and out of like left field that this like famous director would get murdered. It made me think, okay, then he must've been caught up in something sketchy himself. Or maybe he was a part of some, like, I don't know, maybe it was like an accidental, you know, killing or, or a crime or something that then got him killed. But after now, like, really going through everything. I don't think that he had anything to do with it other than like just an innocent guy who was trying to help this actress kick drugs. And I think some kind of drug, I mean, that's the other version that like it maybe had nothing to do with the mom and maybe it was an actual like drug dealer that was coming after him to be like, stop, I'm making a lot of money selling her drugs. Like, didn't it say that she spent like there was, it was, they gave a number, like how many, how many thousands she spent on drugs like per month. I, yeah, I think it was like almost like 10 or something like Like whatever the equivalent high. is today. Yeah, yeah. today. Yeah. So An she was spending amount. a lot of money on drugs. So they were probably like, she's our number one customer. Like, uh, please, please go away. And he wouldn't. And I think also a top referrer too. A hundred percent. So I think it's either the mom or the mom because of like jealousy, you know, kind of weird momager energy so um, yeah or or the drug a, a drug dealer type of situation like you know that like hires a, a hitman type of thing that's why i really was leaning towards the contract killer of this until mm-hmm. the but i'm kind of with you with the mom i feel there's a lot of sketchiness there because i've also read in some uh parts of it that she was kind of crushing on William Taylor too a little bit and had a jealousy right. not only of And that's why she was jealous career. of the daughter. Yeah, because the the daughter was in love with the director and she was like, I want to be with him. Also, that's like a classic, like, I mean, a momager that's like living vicariously through their child, but like to the nth degree. I feel, Seriously. I feel you. We, I feel every year we see more and more of that coming yeah. out of someone who is being like, no, this is crazy. Or we start to just kind of, get some pieces together to be like, oh, you are way too obsessed and connected to your daughter. Mm-hmm. And now why are, why is this celebrity's parents on Dancing with the Stars? That's what I'll say with that. Yeah. To- totally. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all very telling signs that there's a, a really toxic relationship between that parent and that child who's in the industry. What are you feeling? Somewhere? I don't know. I could, I could see either way. I could see the drug hitman or this mom, especially if that spontaneous or if the deathbed confession that I read about was true, then that seems pretty likely. Yeah, I read that deathbed confession, and, and I thought it was interesting. I mean, like you said, when people are, you know, on their way out, they I think they say, you know, 
wild things. And maybe that was some way to like confess in a moment where, you know, they were able to get it off their chest before they left this earth. I don't know. It's interesting. It's, it's it really is interesting. And what is kind of so, and I feel like you probably get you and your sister get this question a lot too, but like we hear all of this like craziness and layers of everything like that from Hollywood stories. And you guys have been in the industry for so long, but you both seem so like you were just like, Oh, we like to go play with horses. And I was reading what keeps you guys so level. Like, is that a conscious working on it or is this just how you guys were built or. Um, I think it's a little bit how we were built. Like we were not like rebellious children. We were, you know, I mean, we would, whatever our version of rebellious was, was not what, kids were doing at that time. Um, and so I think like highlighting library books. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But like reading past midnight. Um, yes, I think our parents knew that they could like trust us and, you know, they, they obviously let us, you know, be around, I guess, adult situations, like, you know, whether it was like an event or a party or we were going to a club or something. And, they knew we were underage, but they also trusted that like we were good kids and we were never going to be out of control. And we just never, we never did. I don't know if it helped that we had each other. So Mm -hmm. we kind of were able to hold each other accountable um, or we were able to hold each other accountable. And I think also like we definitely had friends that were in the industry, but a lot of our friends that, that were actors or musicians, they were like coming up. They weren't like, already some huge name. Mm-hmm. So that probably helped too. Um, that like we had friends that were like still normal kids that we associated with and hung out and had, you know, sleepovers with. So uh, it wasn't all just like kids in the industry who were like super famous. And we had a level of normalcy around us. And I think also that just the fact that we had each other, we didn't like need, we didn't need to go and I don't know, explore drinking and drugs and all of those things at a really young age, because we felt like, we had a place in our home where if we wanted to do something like that, my mom would be like, okay, if you guys want to smoke pot, like you guys can go in the like music room and smoke there with your friends. And then, you know, everybody should spend the night because I don't want you guys driving. Like she was very open, which is kind of also really rare to have that in a parent. Um, My dad was a little bit like, "Uh, okay, I guess I'm okay with this, but like, (laughs) Carrie, why are we agreeing to this? Um, Also because because that was like also available, it was never really utilized, you know? Um, it's kind of a European mom, method. Yeah. Yes. In a way. Yeah. It was very European. I don't even think she knew that she was doing that, but my mom was like very open, very, um, very communicative with us about like all subjects. They were just like all open for discussion. So I think that gave us like a really safe place to ask questions and also like, be ourselves and go through the growing pains of being a teen. I love that. And I'll, and I'm wondering too, because of course we're on the, not the tail, the tail beginning. I don't know what, or the eve of the, the release of your new album, Ali and AJ's new album. Yeah. I was like the tail something. And <laughs> I, I loved uh, a touch of the beat and how it was kind of like 60s, 70s Cali vibe. Could you, is this a continuation of that vibe? Is this a new energy? Like what are you, what descriptions can you give from with love from? And do you have a favorite song on it? Cause I'm always curious about that. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a continuation. I mean, it's, it's one of those records that I think feels like a, a record I will hopefully listen to down the line and, and 
still appreciate and find to be timeless. Um, I think that's a really hard thing to, to actually succeed in making. But if you're, if you're able to write songs that feel like they are not tied to like a specific era and they feel kind of classic in their structure and production, I think they really have that chance to like last a, a lifetime. So I do feel like these songs are even slightly more organic in their production. You know, we kind of leaned into the Americana folk side of the, not only the song like subjects and and even the melody structure, but also like the production. So we made it again at Sunset Sound, which is where we made a Touch the Beat, this really an incredible studio here in, in Los Angeles. And we just kind of, I think, doubled down on like, we feel like we found our home with a touch the beat. So let's just go a little bit further. Let's like root ourselves down in this, like this kind of uh, music and, and go even 10% in that direction. So I think they're actually really great pairings back to back. Like you could listen to touch the beat and with love from and feel like, Oh, these are cohesive. But I think people will, will be like, Oh, I get it. This is like definitely a little different. Like they are expanding this, um, this kind of like range of music making that they started to kind of dabble in uh, on a touch the beat. Love that. We're very excited to give it a listen. Yeah. And are you, Thanks. and you guys have a tour kicking off this. You're, you're going right into tour with this, right? Yeah. We have a tour that kicks off. Oh yeah. Do you mentally prepare for tour? Is that like your favorite part or is that where you're like, I got to pack how many bags? Like, is it fun for a musician to tour? You know, it, it depends on like, it depends on so many things. It depends on like how, prepped out is the tour. Is it like one of those last minute, everything's kind of thrown together because those never feel great. You know, um, the fact that we toured last year and played so many shows, I think that's only prepared us to bring out a really strong show this go around. You know, we have a special performance at Pappy and Harriet's out here, um, in Yucca Valley. That's going to be like just centered on, on the album. We're playing all the songs in chronological order, um, and doing like an intimate, like release, show. Um, and that's kind of like our first show that we'll be performing these songs, um, playing. And then, we, and then we kick back into rehearsal in LA and then, then we're out on the road, like March 28th through April 25th, uh, which is actually a short run for us. Like that's not that long. So for me, I'm like, the packing's going to be easy. We already know our <laughs> show clothes. We have all of the gear, and, you know, it's now just a matter of like the small little details coming together. But I think it's going to be like a really fun run. And I think these songs are going to be integrated really well into the last record. We're trying to bring in some really, really old songs, too, to like sprinkle into the set. Okay. So I think fans will be excited because we're playing some songs that we haven't played in like quite a while. So I Ooh. think that'll be like a fun thing to bring to the show. And I'm really looking forward to playing a song off the record called six months of staring into the sun, which is one of our favorite songs. I think on the album, it, it ends the record. It like kind of bookends it uh, in this really lovely way. And so I'm really looking forward to playing that song live. I think it's going to be really special. Yeah, well, we can't wait That's to exciting. hear that one. Yes. Yeah. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us too. This is so exciting. And we're so excited to hear with love from and hear that amazing tail end song. And also, Thank some of you. the new, some of the oldies on tour too, because yes. those are oh, those yeah. are always great too. Those are always you, you guys will get them <laughs> if you guys can come to a show, please do because it, it'll be really fun. We'll Just be reach there out and let us know. We'll be set aside tickets. Yay! Oh, we would love Ham that. Hammer, oh you guys will be at Hammerstein. Yeah, yes. that, yeah. Or Hammer is it Hammerstein or Hammerstein? Steam. Ah. 
I think you know, it's, it's I don't know. I, I say I say Hammerstein. You say Hammerstein. But I'm also All from right, New then. Jersey, so I pronounce everything wrong, so don't take that. But you know, <laughs> got it. <laughs> Good work. Yeah. Well, I'm just gonna roll with it. So we'll see you there at the New York show. Hey, and yes, then you guys can that. meet AJ and and you can try to discuss two crime with her and she'll just be like, we'll, I don't we'll know about any of this. We'll, we'll try. We'll try. We'll her eventually. <laughs> Yes, yes, one perfect. day, yes. Amazing. <laughs> oh, but thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you. Take care. And I mean, Sarah, I feel like now I'm going to do what every person listening is going to do and just listen to Ali and AJ on Spotify. Oh, I'm ready to bump that shit. <laughs> I, I am so, I'm so excited for that. They did a Chemicals React, like, re... Because that's what they're the doing. Best. They're doing, like, remixes of their old songs, yes. but, like, with their new sound. Okay, we got to so get a potential breakup song. Oh, deeply, yes. Okay, yeah. But, um, well, we're going to do that. Uh, we hope all of you uh, enjoyed this episode. And if you did, rate, review, and subscribe, as always, on uh, wherever you're listening to us. And if there are any guests you want us to get, let us know. DM us, not know the true crime, or DM me personally, Sarah Lameem. And honestly, we'll we'll start reaching out. We'll start shooting our yeah. shot. You never know. 2023 is the year of shooting the shot. And, I, totally. and I'm all, I'm all here for that. You can follow me on Instagram at Cashmere, Danny Cashmere with a K. Follow me at Sarah Lameem. And thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Not Another True Crime Podcast is produced by Jorge Morales Pico and Sean Kilby. Our hosts are Sarah Levine and Danny Murphy. Editing by Jorge Morales Pico. Social media by Sarah Levine. Be sure to follow at NATC Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to NATC at Betches.com. Betches.